we seem to be plateauing in terms of women in senior positions. Going into lockdown really meant that their research was the one that was suffering. These women who do this research are just doing amazing things, right? This should be known, this should be visible, this should be called in the media. Welcome to the first episode of Women in Economics. I'm your host, Carly Sheridan, and this week we'll be looking at why diversity in research matters. Have you ever heard a metaphor that changed your perception of something completely? I have. It's called the ketchup analogy. Yes, ketchup. Scott Page, a professor of complex systems, published a paper in 2004 about the concept of lowering the bar. You've probably heard of this concept before. It's the misconception that focusing on hiring more diverse team members means looking at less qualified candidates. In his paper, Page shared his findings of what happened when he gave the same set of problems to two groups of people. One group was made up of experts, and the other was a more random grouping of people. Can you guess who had higher success rates? It wasn't the experts. The ketchup analogy puts it very simply. If a North American has a ketchup problem, they will look to mayonnaise or mustard because that's what it lives next to in the fridge. If a Briton or North African has a ketchup problem, they look to vinegar because that's what it's stored next to in the cupboard. When we don't have diverse teams focusing on a problem, we are going to be presented with a limited set of responses to deal with that problem. And economics has a big catch-up problem. The stats for women in the workforce aren't great across the board. In the EU, women make up about half of the workforce, but only one-third are found in positions of management. In academia, only 30% of full-time professors are women. But this is particularly bad when we look at economics because economics has a huge influence on public policy, which encompasses nearly every aspect of our lives. All of the economists you'll hear from in this season of Women in Economics have been nominated by a selection committee made up of three renowned economists. I spoke with the committee members to dig deeper into this problem. There are women doing absolutely excellent work in economics, you know, leading the way in, uh, in very different subfields, etc., And yet, we just barely make it to the 15% mark or something like that in senior positions in economics. Helene Ray of the committee is a professor of economics at the London Business School. She herself has made major contributions to economics, particularly around international monetary systems. It's more of a progression along the career path, which seems to be difficult for women. And uh, we seem to be plateauing in terms of women in senior positions. So you see it in... uh, top universities in academia with very few women who are full professor. You also see it in uh, policymaking, in the top economics job. There are not that many women either. Jean Tirel, the second committee member, is a Nobel laureate and the director of the Toulouse School of Economics. He's witnessed the problem in academia firsthand. There are more women undergoing undergraduate studies than men, and yet there are only one-third of economic students who are women. It's about the same for PhDs, but once you get into assistant professorship or full professorship, it's a much lower number. It's the same, by the way, in Europe, uh, including in my own institution, which is the Toulouse School of Economics. We are doing pretty well in terms of undergraduates, so alpha first students are women, but then when you go to the PhD program, it's about 30%. Assistant professors is 25%. So there's 
definitely an underrepresentation of um, of women, especially in faculty jobs. And finally, Beatrice Vera Di Mauro, the third member of the selection committee and current president of the CUPR. Having held positions at the IMF, Harvard University, the National Bureau of Economic Research, and the United Nations University in Tokyo, just to name a few, the issue of underrepresentation is one she knows all too well. I guess I am of this generation where definitely being the only woman in the room was a very, very common experience. In the German Council of Economic Advisors, I was definitely the uh, first and only woman among the members of the council. I was often asked about it. I was asked about gender issues. I was asked about my uh, view on quotas. And it was not really my main concern. I was more interested um, in the question, you know, how do countries grow and how do you conduct um, monetary policy and how do you avoid uh, financial crisis? So I was often pushed to talk about the topic that I didn't really feel I was an expert on, except for the fact that I am a woman. And it's only very recently, really, uh, when I became the president of CPR, that I, I really made it part of my own mission that I decided, uh, no, I, it's something that I have to own myself as well and try to do something about it. Few fields have such a far-reaching impact as economics does. If you're interested in public finance, international development, criminal reform, even health and obesity rates, then economics could be the career path for you. But has this been properly conveyed? In everyday life, we have to deal with economics. Whether we think about markets, the way they operate, but also about uh, financial crisis, which is more my field, economic development, inequality, how we tax international, multinational firms. For all of these topics, economists have developed some tools, some ways of looking at the data in order to get to conclusions, which are really helpful for, I think, everyone. I think there is still some lag uh, in understanding that economics is not what it used to be. It has become more applied and uh, it has become also more connected to the other social sciences. So it's much richer than it used to be. It's very public policy oriented. That makes actually uh, its attraction. And it's very important if we want to solve climate change, inequality, development issues, what to do with uh, tech revolution, both in terms of uh, market power, in terms of privacy, in terms of political power of those tech companies, etc., etc. We are not just playing with models and, and econometrics for fun. We are doing it because we are passionate about our field and, and try to change the world. Not properly communicating the multitude of topics economists can devote their research to could be the first major hurdle when it comes to attracting more women to the field. But it definitely isn't the last. As Tigal mentioned, women make up about half of the undergrads at the Toulouse School of Economics. So what happens along the way? The leaky pipeline analogy is often used to explain the drop-off rates of women in the field. The leaky pipeline describes something where the number of women going in, even at the level of the uh, bachelor and master, is still quite significant. So, so we are somewhere around uh, 40 to 50% in some cases. 
and in some countries, and what comes out uh, at the top is at max uh, 15%. And of course, leakage suggests that it is to a certain extent involuntary, that women are not, when they go into the pipeline, they are not really aware that they may not come out at the other end. There is certainly some pieces that, or some explanations that have to do with factors that are specific to women, that a lot of the stress in academic jobs is really during the time when they are also having families. This brings us to what is known as the tenure clock. Way back in 1940, a group of university professors, faculty members, and administrators came to the agreement that after a probationary period of seven years, teachers should have permanent or continuous tenure. This is a really great example of a well-meaning clause that would have unintended consequences for years to come. Because you know who wasn't a part of those discussions 80 years ago? Women. The tenure clock means that any woman who chooses to start a family is automatically removed from the tenure track as the probationary period must be uninterrupted and completed in full. The tenure decision occurs between six and nine years after a PhD in principle. I'm saying in principle. Now it has gotten worse because there are often one or two gap years between undergraduate and graduate school. So that delays the entry into grad school. And then uh, in grad school, the standard time for a PhD in my years were four years. Now it has gotten to six or seven years. So, you know, the tenure clock starts very late. And if the tenure clock starts very late, that means that it conflicts with the biological clock. We start to understand more and more. And, and, and in fact, some of these things can also be addressed. In the appointment policy of CEPR, the requisites that you have to fulfill in order to be appointed, the fact that you have had a child during the early years of research basically makes for an extension. And similarly, taking it into account that women may need a bit longer to have the same body of research, this is becoming quite uh, well known and also practice, uh, for instance, in when it comes to appointments uh, or tenure decisions. Women who don't start a family are not necessarily in the clear, unfortunately. Unconscious and conscious biases may simply be playing against uh, women. There are, for instance, studies that show that women very often in business schools in particular get teaching evaluations, including from other women in the audience, which are much worse than a man. So basically, the women are teaching at the same level. They, they, they get people to the same level, but they don't get the same evaluation. That's an example of probably an unconscious bias that people have when they see a, a woman in uh, teaching where, um, compared to a man. There have traditionally been places that had not only a reputation, but a culture of being aggressive in seminars. It was quite well known that if you were going to present in university with an aggressive culture, you better put on a warm jacket, as you would say, or a thick skin. And it is true and has been noted that uh, women were particularly maybe affected by this or maybe also the target of these kind of aggressions. And that's, again, something that 
we are increasingly aware of. Coronavirus. A critical stage. Deaths in the U.S. hitting 230. The World Health Organization today declared COVID-19 epidemic a pandemic. COVID-19 has presented economists with a potentially once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. With economic activity disrupted at nearly every level, the number of papers being published increased by over 25% in just the first few months of 2020. The number of women working on COVID-19-related research, however, is a mere 12%. The corona crisis has had a negative impact on many women's research agendas. When the lockdown started last year, this meant that some of the male colleagues went home and really started getting into research. They either accelerated their research plans that they already had or they started completely new research. I mean, the profession has responded enormously to this new um, challenge that the world is facing from a health crisis. But for many of the female researchers, going into lockdown really meant that they were finding themselves juggling homework and children and uh, their research was the one that was suffering The COVID crisis was particularly unkind to junior female researchers. The junior part has to do with the fact that everything went online and all of a sudden it was possible to have guests uh, speaking at your seminar who were sitting on the other side of the world. And what emerged is what I call the global webinar superstar economy. Why? Because everybody started chasing the superstar. These people were increasingly and uh, astonishingly willing to participate in many webinars. But this also crowded out the younger researchers. Uh, The visibility that they would get was all of a sudden less. For young researchers, this is not a good environment. They are lacking the safe and protected spaces where they can present their new research, where they can make mistakes in a smaller environment, and uh, where they can gradually gain some visibility. But of course, diversity is so much more than gender equity. In economics, it isn't just women who are underrepresented. The top positions are held predominantly by white males. Without more diversity in perspectives, backgrounds, and experiences, we lose out on more diversity of research topics and how we choose to approach those issues as a society. The broader diversity issue applies as strongly as the, as the gender, um, maybe even more. In many cases, we really don't have the numbers as concretely as we... We, we now know about gender much uh, more than we know about diversity We don't know what the ethnicity of our researchers is necessarily. And the whole question about ethnical background is something that is now coming to the forefront much more um, strongly than it used to be. It comes very strongly from, from the US experience with Black Lives Matter and the the European equivalent of that is not exactly clear. The ability to create and to innovate uh, is clearly something that improves when you have people who come from different walks of life with a different experience. 
in many ways by not using all the resources that uh, people have and all the diverse resources that they can bring to the table, you will not get the same quality of results. So much has been written on the merits of diversity, but there is perhaps no better place to start implementing systemic change than economics itself. And that's part of what we hope to achieve with conversations like this on this very podcast. Visibility matters. Role models that look and sound like you matter. Diversity in research matters. When I was at MIT, I had only one course with a female teacher. Her name was Nan Freelander. She was a professor in public finance, and she was also uh, the first academic dean at MIT to be a woman. It was a very, very small uh, world. Now, it's completely different now. If you look at uh, the Clark Medal, for example, the Clark Medal is a medal which is awarded to the best uh, American economist under 40 it was only in 2007 that a woman, Susan Essie, actually won the Clark Medal. The recent trend has been between 25 and 40 percent women. Now, that's too little. That's too little, but compared to what was happening before, it's a huge progress, and that's why I'm optimistic. I'm always interested in excellent academic research. I'm always curious about what people do in my field. And I see these amazing women doing this great work. So I want to show to the young generation what it is when, in effect, you are so influential in your field that you can really, you know, change a little bit things both in terms of knowledge, but also sometimes in terms of policy. So this is something that motivates me. These women who do this research are just doing amazing things, right? This should be known. It should be visible. It should be called in the media. Definitely in my generation, there were few female role models. I think today there are increasingly more really beautiful models to follow, both in the academic research area, but also in the policy area. I mean, if you look at the policy area... We have Christine Lagarde, we have uh, Janet Yellen, we have really powerful and really impressive women that are leading really from the front. Be sure to join us next week. We'll be digging even deeper into the effects COVID-19 has had on gender equality. Women in Economics is brought to you by UBS and the Center for Economic Policy Research, CUPR. It's hosted by me, Carly Sheridan, Produced and sound engineered by Zoo Agency Berlin with music provided by Artlist. Help us usher in this new era of economics by sharing the episode with a friend, relative, or colleague, and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The featured persons and the Center for Economic Policy Research are not affiliated with UBS. This presentation is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice or the basis for making any investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed may not be those of UBS. UBS does not verify and does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of the information presented.